Good morning. Our passage today uh, comes from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethany and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Why are you doing this, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, and it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Thank you, Lee. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you the word this morning. Welcome to the gathering of Grace Community Church. Um, I started using that phrase just recently just to emphasize that this place is not the church. You all, we together are the church, and this is the gathering of the body of Christ. So thank you for choosing to worship here this morning. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we enter into a transitionary phase in the gospel. The first 10 chapters, Jesus announces the coming of the kingdom. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he demonstrates through words, through deeds, through his actions, his authority over sin, over death, over darkness, over evil, over creation. And he establishes himself in the eyes of his disciples, certainly, but also many who are watching him, that he is in fact the long-awaited Messiah. So that's the first 10 chapters. Um, Chapter 11 through chapter 13, which we are just entering into today, is a section of Mark where he does finally enter Jerusalem. He finally enters Jerusalem, and he immediately comes into conflict and confrontation with the authorities, with the religious temple system, which he outright rejects in its form. And so there's a transition here, and and we're going to take a look at that uh, this morning. But I want to set the scene. This is a new section. As I said, there's conflict and there's rejection. There's conflict and rejection. And, And here's the question. How should a Messiah confront evil and suffering? Think about that. So from the the disciples' standpoint, they recognize him as the Messiah. He asked them, he goes, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, which means Messiah. It's Greek for Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Peter, man didn't reveal that to you, but my father in heaven revealed that to you. So he's acknowledging, yep, I'm the Messiah. Now, Messiah comes to bring a kingdom, the kingdom of God. He comes to overthrow evil. He comes to abolish injustice. He comes to do all of these things, which... They expect him to do, so how should he do it? 
they're in a quandary because they expect him to come in and to clean house. And he keeps telling them, he's told them three times up until this point, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to go to Jerusalem. I will be arrested. I will be executed, but I will rise again. And every single time they're like, how does this, how does being the Messiah of of Israel and your execution, how does that accomplish your purpose? They don't know. Okay, now that's them. And we can read the Bible. We have hindsight. We know the cross, death, burial, resurrection. We know all of that. But you know that if you believe that Christ rose again from the dead, that the Holy Spirit lives within you, lives within us as followers of Christ, we have resurrection power, how do you expect God to confront evil in your life? How do you expect God to resolve sin, sickness, injustice in our world? I mean, what do you pray? The last few messages, we've seen Jesus ask two, three different people in two different occasions, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want God to do for you? How do you pray? You face injustice. You face sin. You face sickness. You have a Messiah. This Messiah conquered sin and death. What do you ask of this Messiah? And when you ask, what do you expect him to do? We're doing some house cleaning, some decluttering for various reasons. I found an old box. I've been, I, when I pray I, every morning, I, I journal. I write out these prayer journals. I found a box of journals from 1998 through 2006. So just for fun, I went and started reading. That's when I entered ministry, 1998. I started reading. What, what am I asking God to do? And I'm asking him to do the same things then that I'm asking him to do right now. I want him to come in and I want him to clean house. And I mean quick. And he doesn't do what I expect. Anybody else have a prayer life where God doesn't do what you expect him to do? Anybody? Okay, three or four of you. For the three or four of you, this message will be helpful. For the rest, you can just go along for the ride. So here's what we're going to do. The paradox of power. That's the title of this message. The paradox of power. The expectation, that's what we think should happen. Now, we're looking at what the disciples think should happen. So it's, it's their expectations, but it's also ours. The expectation, then there's the observation, what actually does happen, and then there's the application, trusting as we wait. So I use the word paradox. The word paradox, it means it's a statement that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality, it expresses a possible truth. So that's what we're going to take a look at. So please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We'll pray and we'll get into the word. Father, we come to you in humble dependence. Apart from you, uh, we can do nothing. The words that I preach, they're just words unless the Holy Spirit anoints them. And I pray that you would make your scriptures come alive to me, come alive to us, that you might transform us, that you might do a work of sanctification for those who, of us who do believe and a work of salvation for those who have not yet trusted you. Lord, accomplish your purpose this morning through the preaching and the reading of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, first of all, the expectation. Let's start with verse 11. The first half of verse 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, 
at the Mount of Olives. So we'll just pause right there. So Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. So I went to Jerusalem uh, in 2016. Jerusalem is a city on a hill and there is a valley. There's a valley and on the other side of the valley is the Mount of Olives, is the Mount of Olives. So what do Jews expect for the Messiah? When I was in Jerusalem in 2016 and we're standing in Jerusalem and we're looking out at the, at the, at the Mount of Olives across the valley, it's covered in tombs, above ground tombs. Why? Because Jews believe that the Messiah, when he comes, will stand on the Mount of Olives and that the dead will be raised. And so they want to be buried where he comes back. That's from Zechariah chapter 14. By the way, that's contemporary Jews believe that, but also Jews in Jesus' day. Verse 14 of Zechariah, or chapter 4, chapter 14, verse 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward, and the other half southward. Now, if you're a Jew and you're expecting the Messiah to come and stand on the Mount of Olives, you expect something climatic to happen. You expect something, something extraordinary. You expect the Messiah to come in power. That's what you expect, right? Or you expect him to find a battle horse. This is what, this is what they want. We want a king on a battle horse. We expect... We expect to God to come in in force, to come in in power. And this is why everything that Jesus has told them up until this point is confounding them. Because he says, I got to go to Jerusalem. I have to die. I have to be arrested. And they're like, that, that doesn't fit. What do they expect? What do we want from God? We want King Theoden. Lord of the Rings fans, how many of you have at least seen the return of the king? All right? Probably most of you. Probably most of you. If you know the series... You know the trilogy, you know that in the return of the king, the white city, Gondor, is surrounded by hundreds of thousands of orcs, evil beings, demonic beings. And Gandalf is, is, is faced off with the witch king of Angmar, and, and his, his staff is shattered, and everything looks dark and gloomy, and you hear, this, you hear this shofar, you hear this trumpet, or a phone ringing, either one. You hear it. And all of a sudden, the witch king of Agmar is distracted, and, and he flies away. And, and then the scene changes, and what you see on a hill above Gondor are tens of thousands of mounted riders on valiant steeds. And you have King Theodem giving this rousing speech, and he says, Arise, arise, riders of Rohan, fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter. Spear shall be shaken. Shields shall be splintered, a sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises. Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor. How many of you, when you watch that, you just chills just go up and down your spine? For those of you that are combative, that's you. You're like, yes, yes. That's what you expect. That's what they want. That's what the Jews want. They want a rider on a horse. We want a savior that's going to come in and he's going to heal disease. He's going to fix your marriage. 
He's going to trample evil. He's going to crush injustice. He's going to rid all the world of all the problems. That's what we want. But let's see what happens. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Matthew records the foal of a donkey. That means a baby donkey, a yearling. On which no one has ever ridden, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said and let him go. First of all, I want you to notice how intentional Jesus is. Okay, this is not haphazard. Up until this point, nowhere in the New Testament, in the gospel of Mark, Matthew, Luke, or John, does it say that Jesus rode anywhere. How many of you have told your kids they want a car and you say, Jesus walked everywhere you can walk to. You've heard that growing up? (laughs) It's true. Jesus never rode anywhere except here. Is he looking for a ride because he's tired and he doesn't like to walk? No, he walks everywhere. Why does he want to find a yearling donkey and ride it? This is extremely intentional. To fulfill a prophecy. Now, Mark doesn't tell us which prophecy, but Matthew does. And John, in John chapter 12, makes it explicitly clear that the disciples, at the time this was happening, didn't connect the dots. It was only after the resurrection that they were like, oh, that's what he was doing. Okay? So so what's going on? Turn in your Bibles in your Old Testament to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. Matthew actually references this. Matthew actually tells us, he says, and he did this to fulfill Zechariah chapter 9. So here's what Zechariah says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not just a donkey. Joseph led Mary from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem on a donkey. But not the foal of a donkey. The foal, that's a yearling. This is a petting zoo animal that's never been ridden. What inspires fear? In the orcs, as Theoden rides down the hill, what inspires fear is warriors mounted on war horses. Not some guy in a bathrobe riding a petting zoo animal. That does not instill fear into anyone's hearts. This is really weird. But, but even, if, even if they're familiar with that passage... Let's take a look at what the rest of the passage says in Zechariah. Okay, what is this, this king, humble and meek, mounted on the foal of a donkey, what's he going to do? Well, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off 
And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be sea to sea from river to the ends of the earth. Jump ahead here to verse 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Now, if you know that passage, and you know that the king coming in on a donkey represents a conquering king, what do you expect him to do? What When a nation achieves peace, it says he's going to cut off the chariots. He's going to cut off the bow. He's going to cut off all of these, all of these warriors. How does, how does a nation that's under conquest achieve peace against its enemies? In the history of the world, how does that happen? It's not a trick question. I'm not trying to trick you. Those of you that are history buffs, how does a nation attain peace through war or an overwhelming show of force so that those who are oppressing those nations recognize it's in our best interest to exit and acquiesce? That's how it's done. There's, n- there's no exception historically to that rule. Have you ever heard of Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome? You heard of this? The Peace of Rome. How is the Peace of Rome established? War. How has any nation come to a peace treaty when nations are at war? Victory. There's this, there's this apparent contradiction. Okay, he's going to come in, he's going to shatter the bow, he's going to shatter the shield, he's going to do all these things. Why is he riding a baby petting zoo animal? How does this work? How does this work? That's the observation. So let's keep reading. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. This is the day of, the day of palms. Uh, and, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting. Okay, they're shouting something. They're shouting something. Hosanna. Hosanna, it's a Hebrew word. It means save us now. Save us now, deliver us. Hosanna, save us now. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What do they expect? They expect the king to ride in Jerusalem and deliver them. That's what they expect. This is a quote It's a quote from Psalm chapter 118. So there's a lot of Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled here. The expectation, he's going to ride in. He's going to ride in. He's going to conquer. He's going to save. He's going to deliver, right? That's what they expect. But he's riding a petting zoo animal. You see the contrast? How many of you are going to watch uh, uh, Jack Campbell play football this afternoon? Any of you? Okay, Jack used to attend church here when he was in college and plays for the Detroit Lions now. What if Jack rolled into the stadium on a baby donkey? (laughs) What, 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 who does that? You're going to go out and you're going to do war. You're going to make war against your enemies and you're going to ride in on a petting zoo animal? This does not inspire fear, fear and trepidation against forces of evil. It just doesn't. 
It's just, but Jesus does it. He does it. And everybody, okay, they, there's mixed messages going on here. Okay, he's the Savior. Hosanna, deliver us now. Save us. The king is here. But he's riding a donkey. All right, let's just follow through here. And he entered Jerusalem. Now, there's one or two directions he can go when he enters Jerusalem. He could go to the right and head to the palace where the king lives. Who lives in the palace at this time, by the way? Herod. Okay, so the throne's already occupied by a corrupt king. So he could go there, but he doesn't go there. He takes a left, and he goes to the temple. Now, who's at the temple? The corrupt Jewish religious leaders. Either way, there's a confrontation. Either way, there's a confrontation coming. It's brewing, right? Anticipation. What do you expect? You're following him. You're shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What do you expect? Okay, we're going to the temple. We're not going to Herod's palace. We're going to the temple. What's going to happen? A coronation? Praise? Worship? Maybe confrontation? I don't know, but something big. We'll keep reading. And he went and looked around, and it was evening, as it was already late. And he went to Bethany with the twelve. Wait, what? Let me just tell you what happened. He goes into the temple. It's late. No one cares. No one's there. He goes back home. This is the most anticlimactic verse in the Gospel of Mark. The king rides across, down from the Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem, and then he... It's like Dumb and Dumber outside of the quickie mark. Well, big gulps, huh? Well, see you later. That's it. It's just, that's it. Nothing. What happened? No confrontation of evil. Just nobody's there. No praise, no worship, no confrontation. Just not what you expect. Not what we expect. Application. It's a paradox of power. The truth of the matter is, we want a king on a horse with a sword. If you've ever prayed for anything in your life that's painful, you don't want a long, slow delivery, do you? You don't want a king coming in on the foal of a donkey, humble and meek. You want it fixed. You want your marriage fixed now. You want that rebellious child to return home now. You want that cancer to be eradicated now. You want that loved one brought back now. You want Lazarus to come out of the tomb now. You want a king with a show of power. That's what you want. You want a king on a horse and with a sword. That's how I pray. That's what was in my journals in 1998, 99, 2000, 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. That's what I'm still praying now. And that's what you ask for when you pray. You want a king on a horse with a sword. Of course you do. Why wouldn't you? That's what they wanted, that's what they expected. And does this king have the power to do exactly what we want? Yes or no? 
Yes, he does. He's already displayed it. We've seen him display it in the book of Mark. I've seen him display it in my own life. I have seen God at times deliver in power on the spot. And many of you have as well. There are times he rides in in power with a sword in his fist, mighty in battle, crushing sickness. And there are times he rides in meek and mild on a petting zoo animal and it's not what I expected. It's not what I wanted, quite frankly. I didn't want this. We expect God to work swiftly. We want him to crush evil. We want him to eradicate injustice. We want him to heal instantly. That's what we want, don't we? That's what we pray for. And when we pray and it doesn't happen, we're confused. The image of a king on a petting zoo animal, what? How do the forces of hell shake at that image? How does this work? How am I supposed to trust day to day a God who's so humble and so meek that he continues to, he goes into the temple and he, he doesn't change the political system. He doesn't drive the hucksters out. You say, well, he does the next day in the clearing of the temple. Yeah, but keep reading. He allows those very same people to arrest him and to nail him to a cross. He doesn't clean house like we think he should clean house. Right? We expect a God to work swiftly, crushing evil. What we get is a God who works in and through pain. We want, I want, an instant miracle. What I get is a long, slow miracle. Does that seem contradictory to you, a long, slow miracle? Let me tell you what I was praying for in 1998. 99, 2000. It's like a broken record, just looking at these old journals. I'm praying two things. One is for the health of my wife, and the other is for the personal transformation of my character flaws. And there are many, but the, the, the biggest glaring one, at least in my journals, is anger. And I'm so angry that I'm so angry. It's ironic, isn't it? I'm so angry that I'm angry, and I'm angrier that I can't stop being angry. And it's, it's, it's messing up my, my relationship, especially with my wife. And, and I want God to, I want him to come in and I want him to change me. I'm begging him to change me. I'm also begging him to heal my wife. I'm praying two things simultaneously. I want a king with a whole, on a horse with a sword in his fist. Oh, but do you understand the difficulty when you're praying for instant sanctification and you're asking a God with a sword in his fist 
to deal with your sin? Do you know what you're asking for? Do you know the danger? That king may sheathe that sword in your heart. How do, you, how do you change? How do you become a different person? It's only through the miraculous sanctifying power of God who is humble and meek and gentle and lowly. I'm not saying that God can't sanctify instantly, but he doesn't. I'm not saying that God cannot heal instantly because he does. He has, even in my own family. But not always. We want a king to work swiftly, but we get a God who works in and through pain and suffering. Do you want to know why I was so angry for so many years? Because I was proud. I was not humble. I was not meek. I was nothing like Jesus. At least there was gradual progression But please understand, if Jesus were to eradicate the sin in my heart instantly, he would have eradicated me. We get a God who works in and through suffering. Let me read to you something from uh, Tim Keller, his book, Walking with God Through Suffering. It's actually one of the Thrive classes that's being offered. Um, Tim Keller says this, he says... Now, do you see what would have happened at Jesus' first coming to earth if he had come with a sword in his hand and a power to destroy all sources of suffering and evil? It would have meant that there would be no human beings left. And if you don't think that's fair, I would argue that you do not know your own capabilities or your own heart. But Jesus did not come to earth the first time to bring justice, but rather to bear it. He came not with a sword in his hands, but with nails through his hands. Christian teaching for centuries has been this. Jesus died on a cross in our place, taking the punishment our sins deserve so that someday he can return to earth and end evil without destroying us all. That's the paradox of power. I want you to turn as we we close to the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. You know, we know that, we know that, you know, Mark 15 and 16, Jesus is crucified and then chapter 16, he rises again. We're going to see that as we study the book of Mark. And, and you already know this anyway. You know the end of the story, right? You've read the end. He does get crucified, but he conquers sin and death and he rises again on the third day. So, and, Mar- and Paul says that the very same power, the very same spirit that, 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 that caused Jesus to rise again from the dead, Paul says that if you're in Christ, that very same resurrection power that comes from the spirit indwells you. You have that very same resurrection power, right? That's, that's what the Bible teaches. Every single one of you, if you are in Christ, you are holy, you are perfect, you are loved, you are adopted, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's what we know. That's what we know. So we think, we think, well, this God that's so powerful that lives within me should change me and now and, and change and work through the world quickly as the kingdom of God advances to confront evil, 
to bring about healing, to abolish disease, sickness, and death. That's what we expect. That's what we want. And so the disciples, after the resurrection, they have this very same idea. And they ask, so are you going to establish the kingdom now? And Jesus says, that's not your business to know when. But wait until Jerusalem until you're empowered from on high, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. And so they're faithful. And one by one, they're martyred until you have the very last of the 12, John, who's not martyred, but he's imprisoned, exiled on the island of Patmos. 65 years after Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a baby donkey, there's still injustice. Rome is still ruling and the world is still full of wickedness and all the apostles are dead except John and he's imprisoned. And the church is asking, when, when are you going to establish your kingdom? When are you going to overturn the forces of evil? When are you going to let your people stand up and be praised and give glory to you without fear of persecution? When? And John gets a revelation. He's snatched up in the spirit and he sees things that only people like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah have seen. And he writes them all down for us. And in, 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 in one chapter, Revelation chapter 5, he sees the right hand of him was seated on the throne, a scroll, scroll written within it. And on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? These are seals of judgment. Who's going to bring judgment on the wicked? And when these seals are opened, the, the judgment's going to come and everything's going to be made right. And, and so the angel, who's worthy? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. No one's worthy. John begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Do you know what that means? It means that at this point, since no one's worthy to open the scroll, that means that the rights or the wrongs would never be righted. And John rightly begins to weep. And one of the elders said to me, that is John, weep no more. Behold the lion." of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay. Okay. Here it is. What does John expect to see? It's not a trick question. What does the text say? He expects to see the lion of Judah. There's nothing more majestic than to see a lion with its mane, power, the king of the beasts, the king of the jungle, right? A king in power, claws, fangs, dangerous. That's what he's told. He says, behold. The word behold means look. It's like, John, look. Take a look. The lion of Judah. Now, when you go to a zoo, and you enter the section of the zoo where it says, the big cats. What do you expect to see when you walk into that section? 
big cats, lions. And what does he see? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went to look and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the what? Before the what? Before the lamb. Before the lamb. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. John was told to look to the, to the lion of Judah. And when he turned and looked, he saw a lamb. He saw a petting zoo animal. But not just a petting zoo animal, one that's been soaked in blood. There's nothing more paradoxical than to look to a petting zoo animal that's been slain to deliver you. There's nothing more paradoxical to expect a king to come in on a white horse with a sword in his fist, but to see instead a man who declares himself, his heart is gentle and lowly. He is humble, he is meek, and he's riding a baby donkey. That's the paradox of power. Yes, we want God to eradicate all of our problems right now. And he says, no, 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 no. I will wipe every tear. I will change. I will eradicate injustice. I will deliver you from death. I will deliver you from peril, but I may take you through it first. In the meantime, we wait and we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. God is answering the very prayers that we are bringing to him, but not necessarily in the way that we are bringing them to him. That's the paradox of power. That's the paradox of the cross, the death, the burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as the praise team comes forward, we're going to end service a little bit differently. Um, We're going to hear a song. You can sing that song if you like, or you can just sit and think quietly. But I'd like us all to consider how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond to the fact that Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is also the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the earth? How are we going to respond to that? Each of you have issues in your life where you want God to deliver you, and you want him to do it a certain way in a specific way. And sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. But in either case, God says, I will work all things for the good of those who love me and who have been called according to my purpose. How will you respond knowing that God has given everything in and through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son to deliver you from evil, to deliver you from sin, to deliver you from death? One of the lines in the song that we're going to sing goes like this. As it is in your kingdom, let it be in your church. There's no guarantee that the church reflects his kingdom. There's no guarantee that my life will reflect the life of Christ. So as as you hear this song, as you sing this song, ask yourself and ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit, 
what would you have me do in response to what you have done for me? By reading passages of benediction from Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. The Apostle Paul writes these words, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, well, who can be against us? You did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you that you are the Lion of Judah and also the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world for the sin of man. Thank you, that Father, that you have given your Son and you give us all things in him. And give us patience and faith as we await his blessed return. Lord, we know that when you return, you will make all things right and undo the very forces of hell that fight against your people. Lord, we pray that you would bring glory to yourselves. Help us to trust you as we wait for you and continue to pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go in grace. If you would like to be prayed for and uh, prayed over, encourage you to come forward. There'll be people up here to pray with you.